said this a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember if it was last week or not. Uh, but yet, that was another song my mom used to sing to me and uh, one of my brothers. We shared a room, and uh, I just it all, it almost made me tired just then because I remember we'd, we'd be going to bed and she'd sing that song and and uh, oh man, this is some good memory. But I, I think what's so interesting about that is I wasn't a Christian until I was 20, even though I grew up in the church. And actually the text that we're looking at this morning uh, has described a lot of my own testimony, particularly in the younger son of the parable of the prodigal son who runs away and tries to live uh, a wild lifestyle. And what's interesting about that song and remembering that is that even when I was hearing that at six, seven, eight years old, even though I would not be a Christian until 20, God had me the whole time. And he will get his people. And that is the gracious God that we know. So with that, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, we'll read first verses 1 through 2 and then verses 11 through 32. And as always... And especially here, keep your Bibles open because I really want you to keep looking back at the text to see what our God is saying. Luke 15, verses 1 through 2, and then 11 through 32. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, talking about Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, verse 11. And Jesus said to them, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat 
and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have slaved for you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, even in the reading of your word, your word that is living and active, We know that even in the reading of your word, you soften hearts and you also harden hearts that don't believe. But we're asking, Holy Spirit, that as your word is unpacked and unfolded to us this morning, that you would soften our hearts. And by your abundant grace, help us to see how gracious your grace is. Father, many of us have maybe heard this preached numerous times, and it can become just another time we hear it, but would you this morning startle us, startle us at the magnitude of your grace, the scandal of your grace here, and so we're asking that you would meet us where we are, all the burdens that we bring in here before you, Father speak to us and show us your son by the power of the spirit, we ask all this in Christ's name, amen. What makes Christianity different from all the other religions of the world? Years ago, that very question was discussed at a conference. And some of the participants argued that Christianity was unique because it taught that God had taken on flesh and become man. Someone had objected, saying that there were some other religions that had taught something like that. And they said, well, what about the resurrection? No, it was argued that other faiths believed something about the dead rising again. And so the discussion grew heated. And then there was someone who walked in the room rather late. There we go. A man by the name of C.S. Lewis. He asked, what's all the ruckus about? He learned about what they were having a debate on and about the uniqueness of Christianity and he immediately commented, he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. God's grace is what makes Christianity unique from every other religion. And it is particularly here in Luke 15, this grace of God 
That makes Christianity so unique. We are in our study on who is God. We are now at the point where we're looking at what is the grace of God. And we've been been very uh, heady intellectual recently, and so I thought it might be very appropriate to show you a picture of the grace of God, almost the preeminent picture besides the cross. Jesus himself is telling us this parable. And now it's important to remember that this parable is not first and foremost about repentance. We can learn a lot of things about repentance here for sure. But the main point is not about repentance. It is about the Father's willingness to receive sinners. You see, even in the context of what's being told here before this, Jesus has told two parables about the joy in heaven, about lost things being found. And so you would say that theme would continue here. But yet you also see in this parable that it is bookended at the beginning and at the end with one character. Who is it? The father. The main character of this parable is not the younger son who runs off or the older son who stays at home and grumbles. The main character is the father. And actually, when we look at the so-called repentance of the younger son, as I will unpack for you, it's actually really bad repentance. It's not even repentance at all. So what we are faced here in this parable is this, is that God loves to find that which is lost. And he's contrasting this with the Pharisees who were supposed to be the shepherds. They were supposed to be the pastors who would find the lost people. And he is saying how different they are from God. Because God loves to find sinners. And he loves to bring them in. Amen? No one, no one is more gracious than God. Go back to verses 1 through 2. We need to ask three questions first off. What is the sinfulness of sin? Then we need to ask, what is the graciousness of grace? And thirdly, we need to ask, what is your response? Verses 1 through 2 helps set the context. We have uh, three parties here besides Jesus. We have the tax collectors and sinners And the Pharisees, and we'll put the Pharisees and scribes in one group. Now, here's why this is interesting. The tax collectors, they were, as one person says, they were the collaborators with the occupying empire. The tax collectors were Jewish people who essentially wanted to make more money, and so they worked with the occupying empire to take more money from the Jewish people and give it to the empire. And they said, look, as long as you give us our share, you can take whatever you want off the top and it can be yours. Tax collectors were almost the most despicable type of Jew known in that culture. It was a huge betrayal for the people. So for Jesus to receive tax collectors, that's a pretty bold statement. He also is receiving sinners. When it describes them as sinners, another person says the primary attribute is that they cannot be included among the righteous. And they are therefore persons of low socio-religious status, and they are counted among the excluded. In other words, sinners were the furthest off. That's who Jesus is going to meet. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling, and we do need to understand who the Pharisees are if we want to understand what Jesus is doing here. You see, actually, before Jesus had come, we need to remember that where in the ancient Near East where Israel was, it was a very coveted piece of land. 
And so many empires from the north and the south would try to overtake Israel so that they could occupy that land. Now, in order to fight off against those cultures' influences, there were certain parties that were formed, the Pharisees being one of them. And the Pharisees did this. They said, we will not be worldly. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a bunch of laws, 600 plus laws, to make sure that our people will not be like those worldly other peoples. Now, here's the point. When the Pharisees see people like tax collectors and sinners, they are looking at them saying, you're the reason why God has not brought us to the restoration those and those and those. You're the reason why we're still being occupied by them. That's the context. Does that make sense? <laughs> so, Jesus, to eat with these people, the Pharisees would look at Jesus and they would naturally grumble because they would say, you're ruining all of our efforts. We're trying so hard to make people righteous and good and you're messing it up because you're embracing it. And so Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable, look at verse 11, of a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. The younger son has a very rude request. You know, you don't receive an inheritance unless someone is dead. And so the younger son is looking at his father and he's saying, look, you're basically dead to me, so let's just live that way. An ancient audience would have longed right then and right there for the younger son to be severely punished. You see, we need to ask the question, what is sin? Sin is spiritual adultery. Sin is divorcing from God to indulge in other lovers. I mentioned this, I believe, last week or the week before, that sin is very much like the hookup culture where we say, I don't really want to love you or get to know you, I just want to use you for my own satisfaction. That's what sin is, and that's what this younger son is doing. What's interesting here is that the father brought his very son into existence. The father has provided for his son his entire life, and he has the audacity to say, you're dead to me. And isn't that what God has done for us? You see, maybe you're struggling to relate to the younger son, but we often run through these seasons of spiritual adultery where we say, I don't really want you, I just want your stuff. Here's some ways in which we do this. We simply use Christianity for our own status in our community. We go to church merely as a place to network socially and with work connections. We don't really want to worship God, we just want the perks. Or we indulge in sexual activity outside marriage. Or we hoard riches and we never give any back. Or we obsess over any success and never thank God for it. We demand from God to have healthy bodies, but we withhold worship of him. We pray for success in ministry, but we forsake intimacy with God. Let me ask you a question. In what ways do you want more of God's stuff than God? The son 
with a very rude request. And then we see the seduction and severity of, of sin. Look at verse 13. It says, not many days later, he gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in, in reckless living. What is this son, what is he wanting? He's wanting his own kingdom. He's wanting his own rules. He is believing the ancient lie in Genesis 3, you can be God. Just forsake God being God because you can be God. That's what he's believing. You see, when we think about it, sin is so absurd. It's crazy to forsake the all-sufficient, infinite God for trivial things. It says he squandered the inheritance, he squandered his property. The son was not legally allowed to sell his inheritance while the father was still alive. You see, he wasn't, in just going off and living a wild life, he wasn't merely just breaking his father's heart and embarrassing his own family and community, he was badly breaking the law. You see, when it says in the Greek that he squandered his property, it does not mean this. It does not mean that he just had one bad weekend and that's it. No, no, no. In the Greek tense, it is actually used to summarize the entirety of his life. In other words, it was a lifestyle of squandering. You see, when it says he lived in reckless living, it means that he didn't have any moral or ethical restraints. He did as bad as bad could do. When it says that he spent everything, it means that he literally had nothing left. All of it in its entirety. You see, we have a clue for how wild his living was. Actually, in verse 30, when we see the older son criticizing the father... And he says, this son of yours who has devoured your property with what? Prostitutes. In other words, it really fits the bill <clears throat> that he was committing spiritual adultery uh, in, against God and he was literally committing adultery physically. Some of you, this might be your own story. This is actually what the book of Hosea is all about. God tells Hosea to go again and love an adulterous woman. And that adulterous woman is us. See, maybe you have been indulging in adultery, sleeping around, indulging in pornography or any type of lustful image or even a lustful image from a TV show that you think is fine. And you think one look isn't very bad, but my friends, let me tell you, one look might harden your heart forever. You treat your own body like it's a prostitution ring. You send sexually promiscuous texts and pictures to others. Or you just simply don't promote biblical sexuality. See, some of us are like Augustine before he was converted. And we say, God, grant me chastity and sexual restraint, but not yet. Maybe this isn't you, but maybe you are the type of person who is living the drunken lifestyle. Maybe you've literally run away from home. You're pursuing riches to satisfy yourself, 
or you're using something to numb the pain all the time. Maybe you are the murderer. Maybe you are the one who's, who's had an abortion. Maybe you are the one who's embracing the LGBTQ lifestyle. Maybe you are in the process of laundering money. All of us in here are the younger son at some level. The moment we say that we're not is the moment we know that Satan has us where he wants us. You see, spiritual adultery puts us in the gutter. And we become unclean, and we should feel that uncleanness. You might say, but I'm not that bad. Let me give you some reasons to rethink that. First, isn't it pretty evil of a spouse in a marriage to look at the person that they married and say, I never loved you one day. I just wanted your stuff. Second, God does not reveal to us all of our sin at one time. So how do you know that you've seen all your sin? Third, the badness of sin is seen more accurately in light of the goodness of God. Fourth, would you dare take that type of mindset to say, I'm not that bad, and would you take that to the cross, and would you look at the bleeding Savior there and say, God, you made a mistake by sending him to die for me. Fifthly, this is also the sign of your hardness of heart and spiritual numbness, because sin has a blinding effect. When you look at your own heart and you say, I'm not that bad, you better be sure that sin is blinding you. All Christian growth has within it the knowledge that we are sinful and in need of a sin-saving God. There's a famine. God brings a famine, and often in the Bible it's a theme of God's wrath. We see that in the book of Ruth. And when it says that he began to be in need, it doesn't mean that he just needed a little bit of help, a little bit of resume repair, a little bit of assistance. It meant that he was in a dire situation and he needed rescuing. He was longing, verse 16, to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Longing, as Pete Hatton often tells me, this Greek word means epic desire. He had an epic desire to be fed with the pods the pigs ate. Now, here's what's interesting. What do Jewish people in that time, what did they think about pigs? No bueno. They were unclean. This son, let me tell you, is at the lowest of the low. No one could be even fathomed to be farther off in all of world history than this son. And Jesus is intentionally trying to show you that. He's trying to show you that if the greatest of these can be saved, so can you. You see, things were even so bad for him that it says no one gave him anything, not even some pity food. And now, look at verse 17, it says he came to himself, and really what he's wanting to do here is that he's wanting to earn his way back. This isn't even right repentance, it's wrong repentance. You see, when spiritual adultery is committed, it cannot be repaired by trying hard enough. There was a news story one time where 
uh, there were signs in the front yard of this house, and it said, Mom on Strike. And this mom was so fed up with her husband and her children for not doing their chores that she had packed up her stuff and she had moved into the tree house in the backyard. And it was such a story that the news came out and they interviewed the father and the father said, look, we're doing all we can and we're making sure we're staying on top of our stuff and hopefully she'll come down. You see, they had broken the mom's law and they were paying for it. But here's the thing with God. When you break God's law, you and I cannot atone for it. He will not come down to us by our own works. And we cannot make it to him by our good deeds. It says he came to himself. See, sometimes we can look at this and we can say, oh, that's good. That's the totality of repentance. And that is certainly a part of repentance. Repentance is certainly nothing less than coming to a sense of what we've done, but it is very much more. Because many people, many of us in here can realize we've done bad things. Even Even the devil himself knows he has sinned. You see... Just because you come to yourself doesn't mean that you have come to Jesus. Parents, let me encourage you with this. Sometimes it's very good for your children to hit rock bottom. And sometimes God delays, excuse me, sometimes God delays their coming to Jesus so that they can realize the sinfulness of their sin. Because when you do, you will appreciate the graciousness of him. And this son hits rock bottom. Brendan Manning says, sooner or later we are confronted with painful truth, inadequacy, and insufficiency. You see, in the Antarctic summer of 1908-1909, Sir Ernest Shackleton, what a great name. Sir Ernest Shackleton and three of his companions attempted to travel to the South Pole from their winter quarters. And they set off with four ponies to help carry the load. Weeks later, their ponies were dead. Their rations were exhausted. And they turned back toward their base. Their goal was not accomplished. Altogether, they had traveled for 127 days. And on the return journey, as Shackleton records in the heart of the Antarctic, he says the time was spent talking about food, elaborate feasts, gourmet delights, sumptuous menus, and as they staggered along, suffering from dysentery, not knowing whether they would survive, every waking hour was occupied with thoughts of eating. That's probably something of what this son is feeling. But yet, how much worse is the real condition? He has a ridiculous plan. What's his plan? His plan is to work his way back. His plan is to say, You know, I can be like one of those hired servants, and I can earn my father's love back. It might take some time, but my friends, I can do it. So foolish. He wants to be a hired servant. Now, we need to remember is that there is actually a difference between the household slaves in that culture and the hired servants. The hired servants were the day laborers who were the lowest of the low of people. He wasn't even asking not to be a son and not to be a household slave, but to be a hired servant. See, but he had forgotten what Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, that we are dead in our 
sin, not kindness instead, pursuing a little bit of help. We forget that Romans 3.20 says that the works, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Oftentimes, our approach to the Christian life is like the classic story of the plumber who looked at Niagara Falls and he said, I think I can fix this. Why do we need to camp out here before we talk about the graciousness of grace? Because my friends, if you don't understand the sinfulness of sin, you will not understand the magnitude of God's grace. Some of us are trying so hard to earn God's love and we think we're doing good. Some of us know we can't earn God's love and we've given up and we say, it doesn't matter how I live, I can live however I want. The problem with both parties to this is too much of you. Life is all about you. And that is the essence of sin. Because you have said, I will be God rather than God. And my friends, no one is more gracious than our God. Amen? Let's see what happens. Look at verse 20. Look at this, look at this sequence. Can't make this up. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What is the graciousness of grace? See, when it says the father saw him, When it says he saw him, it doesn't say he was a short way off, does it? What does it say? A long way off. And actually, that word for long means actually probably a couple of miles. You know what that means, right? The father, the moment the son would have left his property, he was constantly scanning the horizon to see when his son would come back. Come on now, you can't make that up. The father was constantly looking for his son. Now notice that when the father saw him from so far off, he doesn't do this. He does not do, he doesn't say, let me see what he does first. Let me see if he's sorry enough for his sins, and then I'll show compassion to him. No, 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 my friends. The first look, while he's a long way off, he shows compassion. When it says that the father felt Compassion, it means sympathy in the deepest part of his being. Literally, the Greek word talks about the bowels. It means that he melted within him. Now, I want you to think about this. Here's what's also really cool. When it says, it doesn't say he worked himself up to feel compassion. It says he felt compassion. In other words, it is a passive verb, something that just naturally happens to him. Here's what it says. The very first look that when God gives you, the moment you look at him, compassion. That's the picture Jesus is painting here. It is a natural reaction. There's nothing fake here. How different from us maybe when we go back home and we see these bullies in high school or these people who mistreated us. And the moment we see them, what do we do? We cringe inside. We wish the worst for them. But the exact 
opposite reaction is said of the father here. And no one offended someone more than this. But the father has felt compassion. How do you picture God when you sin, dear Christian? You see, this is not an... We need to remember whenever we talk about God, the infinite one, that not everything is exactly 100% identical to God, but actually it is analogical. Now what Jesus is saying, everything in here is absolutely true, but Jesus is also trying to say that however amazing this parable is, your father is more. More gracious than this? Yes, my friend. More compassionate than this? Absolutely. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying this is good news. The father feels compassion. And he doesn't just sit there and say, this is going to be a great moment. I can't wait till he makes it all the way to me. What does he do? He ran. You see, Jewish men of dignified status were never to be running in that culture. It was shameful for them to run in culture. And we know this is a very dignified man because he has a fattened calf. Very expensive. He clearly, he doesn't just have household slaves, he also has hired servants. This is clearly a very dignified man. But he runs. He says this, I would rather bring shame upon myself than for you to linger in shame one more minute. Amen? Come on now. That's got to be eating pizza. In Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, there's a ceremony (laughs) where if a son did something like this to the father, the moment the son would return, the community would take stones and they would stone him right then and there. The father is running and he is saying, look, nobody is going to do that to my son. I'm taking him in. I'm embracing him. And it begs the question, where do you think that shaming ceremony is ultimately going to take him? The cross. Parents, we ask this question. Do we run to our kids when they really offend us? When they have really offended us, when they've really sinned, do we ever God is more eager to bestow forgiveness upon us than we are to believe it. We walk to receive God's forgiveness. God runs to forgive us. Amen? That's what he does. He gets there and he UFC tackles him to the ground. Literally, when it says he embraced him, he fell tightly on his neck. Now notice this. You ever been in a situation like that where you've seen a friend you haven't seen in a long time and you're so eager to see them and you run towards them? And sometimes when you run towards them, you're like, okay, I'm kind of done running. This is great. Good to see you. No, it's actually the picture is the closer he gets to his son, the more eager he is to be with his son. He can't be there quick enough. Maybe even hypothetically in this parable, maybe even before Ken Ken's trying to get to him, he's running as fast as he can. He hops on his neck. Now, where has the son been? Is he all showered up, old spice, clean? He has been with the pigs, the unclean pigs, rolling in their maneuver, longing to be fed with their food. I just said maneuver, I meant to say manure. 
And as he gets to his son, the closer he gets, the more sinful and dirty he sees his son. But does that stop the father? No. He runs even quicker. He does not say this. Whoo, boy, you stink. You can go shower up first. He doesn't say this. Now, son, you really need to fix things first. He doesn't say this. Now, let's make sure that we constantly search your past to figure out why you did what you did so that this never happens again. The father's not ignoring his sin. It's in spite. It's actually despite his sin. He intervenes. You can't make this stuff up. We often think, if God really saw me for who I am, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. And my friends, this is the exact opposite picture of what Jesus is doing here. One psychiatrist has said, I could dismiss half of my patients if I could just look them in the eye and give them the assurance that they are forgiven. The father kisses him. The kiss in the ancient world, as one person says, was both a friendly sign of greeting and an emotional token of farewell. In the early Christian congregations, it became known as a holy kiss. Those who have been incorporated into fellowship of the love of God and were regarded as holy were greeted in that way with each other. See what the Father is doing? He is saying, there is reconciliation. And I'm not wasting any time giving it to you. I'm giving it to you now. Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker say this, so when a person comes to faith in Christ, not only are their sins forgiven by God, but he obliterates them. He wipes them out. He erases them to never again be remembered against them. Hallelujah, right? Come on now. You can't make this up. The graciousness of grace, this is the picture that Jesus is giving. It's no works. It's no effort. It's no being enough. It's not, let's put you through some trials first or give you some tests first. It's not holding it over your head. It's not, have you done enough? It's merely believing. Forgiveness of all your sins. Yes. Do you have to give God a gift? No. Who could give God a gift that's too much to withhold? Uh, You mean I can stop trying to fulfill God's law for my salvation? Absolutely. But what about all the really bad things I've done? That, it can't just go away. Yes, it can. Because Jesus Christ is enough. father hears his son look at this this is amazing look at verse 21 and the son said to him you know kind of picture it father i've sinned against heaven and before you no longer worthy to be called your son and then he gets interrupted why there You have to believe that the moment the father hears, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, is the moment that something repulsive comes up from the father and says, don't you dare do this. You did not make yourself a son. You did not make me your father. I made you my son. The father has the right, not us. 
he says, almost stop that nonsense. And he says, look, bring quickly, don't waste any time, bring quickly the best robe. This would have been the robe that the father would wear so that every time the father walked in the community, whether you saw him a mile away or ten feet away, you would say, that's that guy. That robe. Not like, dude, you're pretty dirty. Hey, just get him, get him, a, get him a good one. You know, but let's just let's save the really good stuff. You know, we have people come over and we love to be hospitable, but then we have the stuff in our fridge and in our kitchen where we're like, I kind of want to save that for myself. That's not in the picture here. This is the father's robe. This is an identity change. The father gives him the ring. This is the family signet ring that would show that the father has received his son as his son. He gave him sandals. This is actually very important because hired servants would not wear sandals. Buddy, you ain't going to earn this. You just need to sit back and receive it. Why do you continue, dear Christian, why do you continue to think that somehow your sinful past or your sinful present or your sinful future is somehow keeping you from the infinite love of God? Why do you think that? What's the order of the son becoming clean? Does the father say, hose him off a lot right now and then we'll put it on him? No, no, no. Put it on him now. That's actually the doctrine of justification. You are saved by doing nothing, but by God giving you everything. Because Jesus Christ and his righteousness, make no mistake, that's the robe. The robe is Christ's righteousness. And God does not say, you better make yourself to me. He says, no, 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 I'm making my way to you. And I'm clothing you in Christ. You've done nothing but believe. And even the belief that you have, I gave it to you. My friends, if you cannot earn grace, you cannot lose it. If the father clothes the son then, then do you think maybe years from now when the son really messes up again, do you think the father will take off that robe and say, ah, you don't deserve it? No, it's crazy. It's always grace. Horatius Bonner says this, God pointing to the cross says, that is enough for me. And the sinner responds and says, it is enough for me too. Is Jesus Christ enough for you? Because God says that. The father celebrates. He, <laughs> he slaughters the fattened calf. And this would be a big enough portion for an entire community. Don't we often do this? Don't we often, when someone finally musters up the courage to confess their sins to us, and they've been holding it in for so long, and when we confess our sins, don't we often hear about, maybe it definitely has probably happened to every one of us except for those here. We sometimes, we sometimes say, you know, we need to put them through a trial period and make sure they really feel bad enough about their sin, make sure they feel even more of the law. But my friends, confession 
means that you've already felt part of the wall. Yes, do we need to feel more of our sin? Yes, and amen, and we will go on doing that. But what enables us to feel more of the law? Actually knowing God's grace. Because then we realize who we sinned against, and then the grace of God brings us back to him again and again and again. Believe in the graciousness of grace. We can't even look at the older son because we don't have time. This is too amazing. But let me leave you with this. As Joe Farone spent Labor Day with his family one year, his thoughts inevitably turned to his son, Tony. Joe didn't know whether Tony was alive or dead. All he had hoped for was that his son might come back home. And late that night, Tony had called him. And when Joe spoke to him, it was immediately evident that his son was in a bad condition. He'd been on drugs for a while, and it had brought him down a dark path. Tony had called his father from a Holiday Inn more than 100 miles away, and immediately the family jumped in the car and went to find him. When the Farones saw their lost son, they could hardly recognize him. He seemed more dead than alive. His greasy hair was hanging across his face. His ragged clothes were covered with filthy vomit. His shoes were worn all the way through. Their prodigal son was so weak and confused that his parents had to carry him out out to the car. And as they drove home, the stench and smell was like a pig pit. Now, here by himself in his thoughts, the father said to himself, I've heard so many sermons about the prodigal son and that stinking pig pit. Now, here I am holding my nose and living out that very scene. And then he said this, my son, I love him because he is my son. He has come back home and that's all that matters. This is the grace of God. And you are beckoned, you are begged to take it to the cross. And this is what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would convince us by the power of the Holy Spirit of how gracious you are. Father, we are desperate to know that this forgiveness really is for us. Oh, Father, we're asking that by your mercy, you would redeem sinners today. You would sanctify the broken today. You would bind up the brokenhearted today. And that we would be a church who embraces the grace of God and embraces sinners who know they need a Savior. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.